Abe. I'm going to start. Yeah, I'm gonna yes, s- my love. <laughs> Thank you. I've been wanting to call you my love. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we're there finally. I'm glad we finally y- got you there. You got it, dude. Oh, I've been asking. You got it. And I got it. Uh, now we're going to. Well, you've been asking the wrong guy. <laughs> now we're going to edit I'm out. I'm all you need to ask. We're going to edit out the five yeah. minutes of us upside down smooching uh, so we can get back to business. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Hey, so. I derailed your intro, didn't I? <laughs> not really. Uh, not really. I'm okay, okay with what you're doing. Uh, okay. Can Good. I ask you just a just yeah. broad genre question about uh, 2002's Spider Man, which I know we want to talk about Fuck. today? Fuck. I know. You're ready for this? No. Yeah, Are yeah, you you're sure? ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're on it. Do you think this is still a 90s movie? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I think so, too. I was watching it. I was like, this feels like a 90s yeah. movie still. Uh, yeah, I'd say any decade. The first, like, sometimes the first, like, three years. Absolutely. It's, it it's tails also, off. like, was there... Here's the thing. Uh, it's, it, it's also movies to me, always work with like, what was the last big thing in the genre to happen? Absolutely. You know, like the fact that in 1999, the matrix came yes, out I and like same action thing. movies and like, yeah, that is a more of a, that's more of an indicator of like what this movie's ex- like releasing into the wild, you know, Correct. because people have seen that now if, for some weird reason, the matrix was made in 1995 this movie would probably be feel more advanced, but you know we're on the timeline and we're on. I guess is That's, does I, that yeah. answer your question? It That's does, a great yeah. question. I was thinking to myself about the Matrix the whole time I was watching this, because to me the Matrix represents the end of the '90s. Like this is a turning point mm-hmm. in what movies are uh, mm-hmm. that is sort of uh, irreversible. Like movies are gonna there'll be a threshold where you can't not be influenced by the matrix if you're going to make an action movie and this movie has it it sort of defied that a little bit like there's some matrix stuff in it and some clear like some of the cgi some of the shots are clearly influenced by the filmmaking there but then there's stuff that feels like good old-fashioned uh like even late 80s 90s fanfare right i mean the stuff at school like we're still looking at school like I mean, Some of honestly, the still action school like stuff. the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. We still look like, and it's so funny because we have like callbacks now. Uh huh. That it, uh, in terms of like, you think of like Stranger Things and whatnot, like, right? It feels like the 90s, there's a brief time where we had like, uh, I know what you did last summer and Scream and stuff. But outside of the horror genre, the. High, the concept of high school never got out of the 80s. It just <laughs> did. Yeah, dude. They got some 30-year-olds because in this it's high like school. Because John Hughes just is like, nah, I got yeah. it. Yeah. No one else tried to do a goddamn yeah. thing. That's right. Even in the 90s, it was like, you know, what? Fucking like Angus comes out or some shit. Like, and it was just like, ah, this still feels like you're doing Breakfast Club. I don't know. That's just me. That's just no, a, I agree. opinion from but- this. It, yak yak here. They all feel like they're reactionary to Breakfast Club. Like cuz Breakfast Club when you watch it still feels pretty grounded in reality even though it's very 80s and the culture mm-hmm. is different. It still feel like it's a grounded movie. You know, it felt real, quote unquote. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the 90s high school movies feel like they're parodying what they th- saw 
in Breakfast Club. This mm. one is no exception because half the people in the school are either in a Gap commercial or part of NSYNC. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're all in these bright yeah, colors, these is, stupid haircuts, yeah. and like uh, they're all forty-five. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're all so old. Uh, you're absolutely uh, you're you're so right about yeah. the Gap commercial. They are. It's, it's like bad. that baby blue shirt, yeah. oh, like sweater, the plaid vest that's that like he wears and stuff. Yellow and orange and shit. Fuck uh, me up, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really did. They had a, Everyone's got like. <laughs> they had a Macy Gray concert. Dean Kane in their locker. Oh, there's so mm. much Dean Kane. So much. So there was much a Macy Dean Gray Kane concert. In all these that, yeah. It really flipped living. me out. <laughs> it was like. Yeah, it flipped you out. She was, I mean, it, it's. She, Something. She was performing under a singular wireless sign, and I was like, okay, got to stop the movie, mm-hmm. find out what happened to singular wireless. I Fuck need to know. Yes. I need to know what happened to the singular. The same thing that happened to Macy Gray. Yeah. Purchased <laughs> no, by at and I'm sure. It's fine. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is weird because yeah. it's like they may, they you know, when they punch out a uh, room in the movie to be like, and now Macy Gray, you know, like, and it's like, yeah, and we're all excited, right? And I, cause like, I'm like watching what the movie kind and I'm of like, excited. they're me, yeah. they're me <laughs> and they're excited. There. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and like, oh. so it's just weird that when you take that much time, you know, that, that, that means she really had star power. Everyone was like, that's right. It was the summer. She was a big deal. Uh, I mean, I, she, she is, a, too. she's a legendary act. I would say, I don't, I, I don't think that's weird. Mm-hmm. I do think also a nineties thing that is really bad in the late nineties. Like, I feel like. Culture got absorbed by corporations in the late '90s in a weird way. Oh yeah. The soda, the soda product placements are really bad. There's a Dr Pepper one where he's like learning how to shoot his web. That's like, bro, that is really Hell offensive. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, working in the background <laughs> of a scene for fuck's sake. Because we've always known that Spider-Man and capitalism they go hand in hand. I mean, for know? real, bro. Uh, for like, I, it's I, just I, one of those things in the comics. Like, you have to be a comic head. Uh, that's true. Know. Yeah, to know yeah. that. Yeah, Doctor Pepper's <laughs> always been the the web power brand of Spider Man. <laughs> uh, I've been watching some late '90s Seinfeld episodes, like after Larry David left, and the show gets much much worse. Uh-huh. And one of the indicators of that is there's always soda product placement, and they have shows about products. That are just like, there's no fucking way that would have happened if Larry that's David brutal. was there. No way it would have happened. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, Yeah, it's real bad. What a time to be alive. You it's, know? it's a weird, like the late 90s, early 2000s is a weird pivotal moment in pop culture where uh, everything that was punk and reactionary about the early 90s gets totally mm-hmm. uh, Disneyfied, you know, and into that pops the first live action Spider-Man movie. In years and years and years, right? Like, I don't. When was the last? Did they ever do a live action Spider Man before this? Uh, I, I don't think so. Maybe I don't know. Not one that is like. I, I'm sure there is, and someone is like, but Abe in 1978, like, I don't know. bro. I, yeah. yeah, 1978, bro. Yeah, um, I'm I'm sure it was fine, but it didn't. It didn't, it didn't matter. Start a cultural revolution, right? And that's not like Spider. This movie did. It started a cultural uh-huh. revolution. That is absolutely accurate. It's an X Men. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of wild when you think back on it. Because I remember being excited and seeing it in the theater and stuff, but I don't remember it feeling like it was important. And but now in hindsight, of course it is. 
right? Yeah, it's 2000 X Men, 2002 Spider Man, uh, Spider Man, yeah, sandwiching 9 11, just like uh, <laughs> you'd expect, just like I just would a expect. Nice little 9 yeah. 11 sandwich for you. Yeah, that's superhero movies. God, I wish you that's were talking about that movies. today in this episode. <laughs> that, <laughs> but I know you're not going to. That, do that this is like, I mean, it is New York film made in 2001 slash two. Uh, I think they had already filmed a lot of this shit. I'm sure they did. Any of that went down. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, so the shots of New York are of a, of a previous time. If I remember Definitely. correctly, and I, I did not look into this because I didn't think we were going to talk about it, but if I remember correctly, they might have mm-hmm. had to redo some stuff to to tone down the damage to New York City because of 9-11. Uh, or, sounds about right. I don't remember if that's I true. I didn't but, look into it either. Yeah. Oh, what I want to get too off Because that's rails. not what I wanted to talk about. Well, what did you I mean, want to talk right, about man. in this episode of Director Peace Theater? Well... <clears throat> Yeah, I'm I'm Abe Epperson yeah, you and are. I have a theory. Ooh. Uh so I've been watching Spider-Man <laughs> on loop for about a month. Uh, sure. <laughs> and I decided that you know what? When you think about camera, Sam Raimi, the director, really does some subtle stuff <laughs> with like showing Toby Maguire the actor. Like, I love that like, you're bothering you're gonna to say get that. In there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I love <laughs> like it. he's 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 there and toby mcguire's there and there's a camera there and he's like all right you're peter now all right you're spider-man now you know what i mean that's like how acting goes you know how movies work right <laughs> i do you, you, I, you understand movies? i do know that i would say just as an observation that i think will help what your theory <laughs> is i do think that uh-huh, toby, this is my theory i, I think i do think that toby mcguire understood the tone of the movie better than anybody else did. You know, yeah. Like, he, he's uh, in tone with what this movie's supposed to feel like. God, the tone, the tone is incredible. Cause, oh <laughs> yeah. my God, yes, I totally forgot that it starts out. It, the fucking voiceover to start it off. Yeah. He's what? playing it so fucking cool. He's like, you want to hear a story? Do you really want to hear my you don't story? Want to. Like, he's like, <laughs> I, I'm a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like Toby Maguire, bad boy. Let's go. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, the tone. He does get the tone. He really does. Yeah. Uh, because it's like, it's what he is. It's like playful and kind of vanilla and wholesome, you know, just like Tom Holland. It's Spider Man. But also, uh, it's kind of got the unhingedness of Sam Raimi, where he's just like, haha, yeah, let's fucking just do some weird shit. Like, let's get real weird with it. And I think embracing the weird was one of the smartest things that this, this movie does like casting Willem Dafoe. What a remarkable inspired kind of decision. What had he done before that justifies that? You know, I mean, he's such a great actor that I don't think it's weird for him to be cast in literally anything. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, like everyone kind of, yeah, he's, he's awesome. But He says something, he brings a certain air to the project, Absolutely. and he has a wheelhouse. It's not like he, he has range, but it's usually like intense dramas and such. You know, at this point he, in his career, he definitely. can get weird and abstract, but he's he's never been as ungrounded in a movie that I can think of mm-hmm. as he is in this one. Like this movie, yeah, and- he's playing a cartoon. 
which I've never seen him do in a different movie. And I'm talking, I you know, right. I love the lighthouse. I mean, you know, where he's like this fucking nightmare Captain Ahab, but he still feels like a real person in that, right? Yeah, he doesn't in this sure. movie. We and, agree on that, right? Oh well, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he's unhinged. His yeah. first shot of him full goblin, that smile is like what haunts <laughs> my <laughs> what? dreams. <laughs> it's like this is what I imagine when I think of a demon. Like I'm yeah. pretty sure he's the Death Note demon. Do you know the Death Note demon? I do. That's Willem Dafoe. I'm pretty. sure. I do. I feel a little bit like Dafoe. I mean, this is all speculation. I feel like Dafoe was was told to sort of play up the movie villainness of it to yeah, I think it actually well so y- robs it of its intensity on to me purpose. obvious yeah like you can throw a rock into the internet and you're going to hit a think piece that is like the goofiness of Spider-Man is what inspired allowed us to make Spider-Man like superhero movies and they're right about that sure but I don't really want to talk about that Oh, forgive Because I'm a big old, I'm a big old nerd. Yeah, yeah. Let's well, do I mean, nerd shit. We'll talk about what you want to talk about, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's not, it's not an inspir, it's not inspired thought to me at this point to be like Spider-Man's goofiness is really what allowed Sam Raimi to. It's like what allowed us all to laugh at and at the same time take seriously the spider, the the concept I agree. of superheroes. But I think that there's something that we forget about this and that's kind of the the main goal of the show in my mind always which is there's if you look even in movies that are not considered you know art films or whatnot or the the type of films where you go like hmm yes that shot has symbolism you know or something like that maybe you're doing that stroking your beard in your dead i tried to i don't know that's why you have it yeah yeah that's why you get a beard to stroke it i think this podcast is mainly kind of, uh, hopefully, kind of a testament to the uh, the the little spots of uh, artifice that we see in movies you don't really expect, and I feel like Spider Man that's true of, and so mainly this is going to cover the like first half of Spider Man, and it's not about his like transitions or his editing or his style. That's all good stuff. We just talked about that, uh, you know, with our. Uh, you know, Dr. Strange and the uh, multiverse of madness podcast and stuff. Indeed. That's his main deal as a director. Most people who know Raimi know all that stuff. That's all fine and good. But I just want to talk about something even more simple, which is just how he frames people. And in this film, it's obviously important how he frames Peter and how he frames Spider-Man because the whole first half of the movie is the coming to terms of that synthesis, right? So if you follow me, the camera works differently depending on who we're looking at. And any comic book fan will tell you that like Peter is stunted. He's oppressed by the way the world and Spider-Man is kind of like free without limitations of where you can go. So it makes sense that this would determine Raimi's kind of choices for how he shoots the film. Turns out it does. And in this case, I basically just want to focus on how framing and shot selection really dictates how we see Tobey Maguire's performance. And this I mean, how close is the camera? How wide is the lens? Is the camera moving? And what's in frame? Those four questions bring us to some thoughts, I think. I just just want to comment, a loving comment on my my pal here. I love that you're tossing out 
all of the normal Raimi stuff. We're not going to talk about all the normal Raimi yeah. stuff. Uh, stuff that yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. you and I would both eat for lunch <laughs> every day if we could. Uh, fair enough. Oh, babe. it's wonderful stuff. I just think that there's been so many podcasts that sure, have said sure. that. There's been so many. And it's like available for your eyes like of not course. that this stuff isn't but it's just so well na- known like think of the Ramy board and like it zooming in or like the you know <laughs> insane crossfades that make the transitions to, uh like uh, almost a sequence of its own like these Ramy uh trademarks are awesome for sure i will say um, out of all the movies that he's ever made they work this is one of the movies they work the best in all the Raimi stuff works really well it in this movie. It kind of does. Yeah. It it's does a good really movie well. for him in terms of directing. Absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, it, it works the best when it's like who gives a fuck. So that's why I love horror. That's why I love it yeah. in Drag Me to Hell. I love it in Evil Dead 2. Uh, but this does feel like it has a place that kind of comes out of comic books. Not it's like his style is what comic books are or anything like that. It's just like... It's just having fun with the medium and comic books are well known for just like, all right, what if, you know, the edges of frame aren't even the edges of frame. Let's just really revision how this shit is happening. Um, Comic places have always been known for that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, that inspiration. Absolutely. Um, But here, let's just take the transparent small approach of the first two shots of Peter, right? So over his narration, which is mm-hmm. a whole thing, we reveal his hand slapping the window of a school bus that he's late for, right? So his hand is like literally in a box. Him, And then it cuts to him running beside a bus, and the frame is a shot of his reflection in the rearview mirror of the bus. A box. It's in, It's a box. <laughs> so it's ah, not... Uh, so he's in boxes. Yeah, so you know where... He's in boxes. Peter yeah. sees the world in boxes. He's a photographer. Uh, we see him... Within, uh, there's a little scene in between with uh, uh, Willem Dafoe and James Franco where we start to get their whole deal. And he's a, um, when we cut back to Peter, he's on his trip. Uh, he's looking at spiders with his class, right? We all remember the sequence. Of course. Uh, and he's a photographer, as we know. And so Saint- Raimi does this thing where we see the way he sees the world by including several shots where he aims his camera like when he's getting bullied and then later when he's looking at Mary Jane, she's also framed inside the camera, like within the camera. Uh, and we'll notice that also in the boxes when we are noticing just, this is the first five minutes of the movie, by the way. Yes. Uh, the spiders in the lab in the second uh, sequence, they pay emphasis on the fact that they're in boxes. Right. We shoot through the box at one point. It dollies across to show the dimensions of the box. Mary Jane is standing there, look, infatuated with the boxes, looking, pointing, touching the boxes kind of stuff. Um, and this is all still also happening when we go home with them. Uh, a little later in the sequence, uh, later in the next sequence, Mary Jane is uh, being watched by Peter because they are next door neighbors. And he's looking in her windows for the first time. Yep. You realize uh, that they're neighbors. 
she's kind of locked in a window as well. So this is all pretty simple stuff, but it's just like, that's what kind of started me going like, what's going on? You say it's simple. Uh, You say it's simple. And yet I feel mm -hmm. like an uneducated film audience probably doesn't realize how often this trick is employed in movies to create this meaning. It's uh, often. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's often or like bars to imply prison, which is something also Raimi does. If you go back to, uh, if you go back to the graduate, which is like a, a a movie Mm -hmm. that filmmakers often talk about for its great filmmaking. There's a, a fish tank box in a box thing that's going on all the time in that movie. Or, of course, yeah, American Beauty yeah. with the prison thing that you said. There's a lot of that stuff. Uh, so yeah, there's a tradition sure. of this and, trope, actually. And what, is it, what does it mean? It can mean anything, as you mentioned, it, depending on the film. In this film, though, specifically with Mary Jane and Peter's, like, look at their houses. There's one it, shot. They're insane. That's a They're bit, insane houses. That's a... That's like, yeah, a little less than 30 minutes into yeah. the movie. And it shows one house left, one house on the right, bisected symmetrically in the frame. And they're like the most skinny homes you've ever seen. They're like, I don't know how to describe it other than like skinny, like the, like you'd expect from like a Tim Burton yes, movie. Yes, they're right? crazy. Or Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah. Like it's... They seem uncomfortably spaced as well. There's too much space between yep. them, and this is feel. This feels like it's by design, and then you start thinking, what does that perhaps mean? Well, maybe these homes were chosen to emphasize the like stranglehold their previous lives has on has on them, and how oppressive like the world is around them. Then the boxes theory starts to kind of make sense, right? They're almost like because coffins. it's like, I mean, really. They're, yeah, everyone's stuck in this like oppressive space. Right. And that is always a good thing to do to your protagonist or protagonists right before you let them out of the box. So I'll definitely juxt- I'll say that there's a juxtaposition that occurs later with the wide open skylines of Spider-Man's world, right? Absolutely. But I want to uh, keep walking kind of chronologically through the movie. But yeah, sure. stop me at any point if you have a Oh, thought. no, I, I, my only thought uh, is that uh, first of all, the houses have to have been designed that way because you would never pick them by accident. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's just those houses are such a loud image because uh, they're silly yeah, and they they're, don't exist. Well, they yeah. feel like and they're also sort of like book matched almost. You know, like they're parallel journeys. Obviously, <laughs> uh, a thing he's clearly doing with Mary and uh, Mary Jane in terms of the coloring she's they they're employing and stuff. Uh-huh. Like there's a clear parallelism yep. that's being done here. Uh, and I like the reason I find this fascinating is because Raimi does a lot of loud choices, you know. So it's interesting that he's also doing this this more subtextual filmmaking stuff too, uh, because most of the time when I see loud filmmaking, the subtext stuff is that's it's replacing that right. It's trying to bring all the subtext forward. Yeah, it's just saying I'm yeah, or I want you to feel the right. The exact whatever I'm saying, I'm, I want you to feel it, like train spotting or something like that. I want you to feel like what it feels like to get high and what it feels like to come down. And I'm going to do that with camera through stylistic approach. Right. Um, Whereas with stuff like that, that always occurs. His flashy stuff is almost like you might say like Scorsese's flashy stuff, which is to say sort of just how he sees movies in general. Like it's not always like he knows how to dial it down, but the fact that he's employing this whole other subtextual methodology tells me that his loud choices are not necessarily as much about communicating the deeper subtextual meaning as much as they are. This is how a movie goes to him. Is that a wild statement? Do you think think? so? 
Okay. I don't think okay. so. Because you also can tell, like, the proof is in the pudding in that uh, it's on all of his movies, with the exception much. of, you know, some simple things plan. like, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, so, yeah, a simple plan. Like, yeah. there's, it's, he's, he infuses himself into every movie he makes, um, or at least what he allows himself tonally, because sometimes tonally it's not a great fit. So he's like, maybe I'll only do it once, but, you know, he would do it a million times, <laughs> you know, if he could, if he felt it was justified. 100%. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to, I, I wanted uh, to make that comment because it stood out to me when I read through your argument the first time. I was like, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, you most people yeah, don't do this for that reason. Anyway, please continue, sir. <clears throat> yeah. So now I want to jump a little bit to camera distance, and I guess more importantly, camera lens. Oh yeah, um, we love those. And lenses. I want to look at the scene where, like, kind of going back to uh, like the. Peter's bits uh, by the spider scene. Uh, I'm, there's this thing that it is really subtle at first, and that's usually not how it goes. Usually, uh, directors want to make their postcard statement first. They want to say, "Here's my protagonist in their spot," like in Act One before they answer the call. Like, here's them exactly. This is what their problem is, or this is how the world sees them or how they see themselves. So here, here it is loudly, my visual strategy to remark it. This movie is a little set different because it doesn't do that, which at first made me think maybe he's not doing this at all, but because of like the theory at all. Um, but based off the stuff he does later, I realized that this actually, it, it still works. And not only that, like it's setting it up subtly. He doesn't want to do this loudly. But ultimately what he's doing with like camera lensing at this point in the movie is that Peter, as in just Peter Parker, is always more wide angled than everyone else. And he's closer to camera initially than everyone else. This makes him the focal point, which is something a lot of directors do with their protagonist anyway. But because it's like, well, the world, we want to see the world through their eyes. So we shoot the we shoot wide to them because the the world reflects back at them with their wideness like that is kind of how we shoot wide angles with protagonists but in a, uh, like so like the shots of what he sees will be large and wide but then shots of him will be wide like wide still but very small in this like claustrophobic thing that we're setting up like the world is looking back at him and it's a bit claustrophobic uh, that to me is saying that like that's just like that's just a metaphor for Peter. He's he's bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, looking at the world with big eyes. The world is a little too close for him, a little too oppressive for him. Mm. Um, and this is something that we're we're noticing in just the camera choice, the camera lens choices that he's making early. Yeah. Now this becomes scripture until Uncle Ben dies, which is like the Act Two break and late, and like forty-five minutes in the movie. It's late in this movie, a little, yeah, a little bit late. Yeah, yeah because uh, it kind of. Act three is kind of there, and it's like Aunt May gets abducted, and then it's just like, all right, you gotta go. Yeah, that's uh, it. Green Goblin's gotta go. You it's gotta over. Fall, um, Goblin. Yeah, yeah, and so like that's a uh, that's a lot of what we're talking about, and it's mostly noticeable through when you see what happens later. He's more telephoto, and camera's a little bit more distance. That's just how you shoot Spider Man. It's but it's interesting. Before I go into that, that you say that because that's. I, that's also not very typical of movies even now, which are would have kind of returned 
to more of a, a close wide angle approach in the last like five, 10 years. Cause like, I would say this mm-hmm. movie predates all those telephoto things that we were doing, you know, in the early to mid to late two thousands, you know, like there's a lot of telephoto stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, there's just a lot of boring film. <laughs> to be honest. That's true. Uh, but like, I'm trying to think <laughs> like, have I seen this approach in another movie? And the only movie that came to mind uh, is like the Inuritu films, like the Revenant, you know, mm-hmm. or uh, Birdman. Mm-hmm. And that's because he got married to it's one camera angle the whole time. So the close ups have to be this close, but you don't really see it anywhere yeah. else. Right. Like it's not a commonly done thing to get that close with these wide angle lenses. Right. Yeah, You see it in stuff like like I think there's a, some lensing stuff that uh, Gerwig did in Lady. Oh, Bird. interesting. I remember that being a lot of uh, mid lenses. You notice that if I'm wrong, but I only saw it once. It's mid lenses, but uh, for Lady Bird, it like it chooses its moments to be up close and personal. Interesting. And th- by that, it's small camera distance, wide angle lens. Hmm. Um, I like it as a tactic. And then it becomes about anyway. No, yeah, no, yeah. no. I I just um, I like it as a tactic. You don't see it in movies that much. I think it's fun to like point out. Hey, people don't do this much. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. Point is, it's kind of. Uh, in any case, usually reserved for filmmakers who are trying to do something with camera. Right. Exactly. Uh, which is not someone, something that you'd say that like Sam Raimi does as much. And I think this is, you know, what's coming out uh, out of this is that it's like, Oh yeah, we forget that Sam Raimi was like a Coen brothers collaborator. You know, like he, he, he came from the same kind of system that like preached this stuff. He just chose he wanted to go his own way with like Evil Dead, and it really like made a stance in terms of his career as like I'm gonna be a guy who's kind of I'm just I'm kind of a wild man is like was what I think maybe for better or for worse that's what he was presented as I'm a wild uh, man yeah that yeah, sounds true but like he's still very tempered it's very tempered you know like it's not just a shot of like. I don't know, an eye going into someone's mouth, you know? Like, it's it's not stupid. There's so many... Yeah. yeah. His zany camera um, stuff is not stupid. Like, like meaning it's not... Mm-hmm. It's not for the sake of, you know? Uh, it's... It, yeah. Like, I, and again, I, I like picking on this director sometimes, I guess, so I don't want to sound like an asshole. But I feel like sometimes, like, right. Tarantino might do stuff that's, like, flashy for the sake of, you know? Uh, whereas oh, yeah. I, I don't really get that feeling from Raimi as much even in a movie like this where he's doing a lot of flashy shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of statements on that, but like, okay. if your goal is trying to be cool, it's a little different from just saying my goal is to be, I don't know, like make this sequence move or something like that. Like that's very specific. Uh, sometimes I feel like Tarantino might choose his shots because it's like, that's cool looking shot. Which you know what? That's not a bad right thing, about. yeah. But it's not bad to just be cool. But if that's your master, what is cool? Cool is a hard thing to define, you know? It's defined by I guess what you think is cool. So True. We're watching movies that like Tarantino likes. I guess that's a definition of any director. But at the same time, it de- you definitely feel it because it feels like it moves at its own pace. Whatever, whatever it wants to do. I like movies that like you can deconstruct and say, "Oh, there's a strategy here." And I'm not saying Tarantino doesn't have strategy. Oh, he has strategy. It's just but- like what motivates his ad hoc kind of. Here's how I'm gonna just go, 
Right. Like, if just left to my own devices, here's the kind of shots that I'm going to come up with. Maybe I'll, maybe we'll. And that kind of instinct is what we're talking about. Agreed. Maybe we'll go back and watch like something like Jackie Brown, which was less of a well-regarded Tarantino film and see what he does with movies that are not the, the, the big zeitgeist films. Cause he's got a few, uh, even his grindhouse movie to see if he's doing stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just not catching it. Cause frankly, I'm, I'm, I mean, not surprised because that sounds condescending. I'm appreciating the fact that Raimi is so intentional with these little details. Uh, but forgive me. I feel like I'm derailing you. Please continue, sir. Yeah. Uh, it's not your fault. Tarantino has the tendency to derail <laughs> any conversation. In the next sequence, we get like kind of what he's doing. To He's doing this with all his uh, protagonists because he or he's doing this with all of his main characters because... Um, He's kind of showing what the world is like before Spider-Man even arrives. Right. And we see that in uh, the initial shots of Norman Osborn slash Willem Dafoe. Um, Not as much when he's talking to his son in the car, which is just kind of normal shots, to be honest. We do see when he is in his element of like he's at work. Right. His work is equally as oppressive as the houses that Mary Jane and Peter Parker live before he's the Green Goblin, uh, the shots place him claustrophobically against the wall, being overtaken by a mass of like army generals asking him questions, yeah. berating him about schedules and like you know quality of his work. Behind him is the pod he later bursts out of, right. which is just of to note. I mean, it's like you shoot it in the space, but it's like when we think about staging as well and what's in frame. Um, Doing stuff like, well, the cage that he's building is behind him is a signal to us to say, you know, this is also he is himself in uh, in like in a cage before he he bursts out of it, before of he becomes a big a gob- little goblin. Dude. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> to juxtapose against that, Peter Parker, obviously, then right before becoming Spider-Man, uh, when we look at the strategy, we just never see him wide. That's the kind of big thing that, like, to me, when I was watching, I was like, that's interesting. Because usually you, you should like do a, like a head to toe, a wide shot a in the element, head to toe. Yeah. Yeah. He, Peter Parker doesn't exist in wide. Interesting. And he becomes Spider Man pretty quickly, uh, like, in, within the first 20 minutes, uh, in terms of, like, physically he's bitten and then he falls asleep and he wakes up. Um, his shot is never larger than, like, a medium wide, like a cowboy shot. We see him in close up and medium close up. Uh, and that's a great way to kind of like dolly in and dolly out of those shots. Like that's what Raimi does. Um, but he never really shows the wide shot. And I think in the introduction of Peter, Mary Jane, Norman, and even Harriet to some extent, which is James Franco, Raimi seems like he's showing his tortured characters in these enclosed spaces. Hmm. Uh, but also the wide telephoto ch- uh, choices seem to be governed by each of them moving out of their shelves. So the reason that this theory starts to like piece together is that once they change, the lens changes. Like, so I'm That's assuming, well, I know this was shot on like 35 millimeters. So I, I'd argue that the lens choices, like just to give it a, a name, of like what we show in the singles of these characters at the beginning of the movie, we're like twenties and 24s, like pretty wide. But then later we're at like 35s and 40s when we get a single. You know, it's just like it's here's a close up of Peter. 
Like think of those shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a, here, here's a shot of Norman. So you can see kind of, uh, and what that lens does to, like that difference of lens choice really does to the image of the film is that you can kind of see the slightly blurred background. The backgrounds are more involved in the composition in a wide because you see more of the world outside. It's just how the lensing works in lenses or in wider lenses, which are the smaller numbers I gave. Uh, the space of the character kind of opens up, but telephoto lenses, the larger numbers, that same space is kind of compressed. Right. And the last thing I want to kind of talk about in terms of like the bag of tricks that he's got is that the first doll. So once Peter Parker's bit falls asleep, wakes up and now he's Spider-Man. We get the scene with the glasses and stuff when he wakes up and he like his head pivots and camera kind of like, uh, cants with him. The fo- the first dolly push back of Peter Parker is when we he wakes up as Spider Man, and that's a I'm gonna touch on that in a second about when Sam Raimi dollies in and when he dollies out. But right before that, I just wanted to mention that he's doing the thing again with the like the glasses in yeah. that scene. He sees the world through a glass. This is obviously obvious to any comic book reader. It's obviously, especially pointing in this movie by the fact that he moves them up and down into frame, like literally on the camera lens. So boxes and boxes, they're no longer useful. So that's where it's starting to evolve. It's starting to say the boxes aren't needed. That's the first signal that we get is that when he wakes up and he's now Spider-Man, the lenses are changing, the motion of the camera is changing. And now we're starting to get an evolution of this boxes and boxes thing where he's like, get rid of these boxes. Right, because because uh, the spider power get... doesn't have to make him good at seeing things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he doesn't have to get better at yeah. seeing at all. Uh, like that doesn't need to be a part of it. I mean, it makes sense. It makes, it makes sense. It makes I sense mean, enough. when we get yeah. spider, yeah, when we get Spidey sense, and that's just written in the comic book, so it's it, sure. We yeah, it doesn't matter. But like Spidey sense sequence where it's like it moves from like you know uh, when he goes to school for right. like that day. It goes anywhere in the room. It focuses on small details like a mosquito or someone firing a spitball through straw. Right. Uh, this is the idea of Spider-Man obviously becoming, opening up the world. Um, and now is kind of when I want to mention the Dolly back stuff because there's a sequence that happens with Peter. Uh, like, So just think of a, a close-up shot of Peter that becomes slightly wider. It happens several times in the movie. It's exclusively, these are beats where it's like, Peter's activating his inner Spider-Man because uh, we get a montage pretty soon here where it's like he's trying. He's what does it mean to be Spider-Man? I'm gonna try to like web all around and you know like so. Anytime it's like Peter is activating his inner Spider-Man or he must step up and make a choice. It's like the call you know approaching him. That's what happens. Like when that is when that is like the context of the scene. The dolly back means that he's answering it. Yeah, you kind of so pull, far. The, dollying the, it in has back. kind of been. Yeah, 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 yeah. It pulls back. Spider-Man right. is always a pullback. But we noticed if we look at just the first fifteen of the minutes of the movie, uh, the Peter game is that's always dollying in. Hmm. It's again the oppression of the world coming at Peter. The dolly back means Spider-Man can fight back. Everything. The world is opening up to him. So 
I don't think it's a mis. I, it's like no mistake in the comic book and in the film. As soon as, P- as soon as Peter tries to assume controls of his powers, that he goes outside to like rooftops and such. So that uh, that is also obvious in terms of when you look at the shots, the closest closed space uh, of shots that exist in Peter's life have now become kind of this open space, which is the New York skyline. Um, the next se- sequence we really get is the wrestling ring. Which just real quickly, that becomes a rage in the cage. Yes, and it's like obviously box of men, baby. Give me those bars as the background. We <laughs> talked about this in prison. This motherfucker. Also, give me more macho uh, man. And uh, can't get enough macho oh, man, yeah. baby. He's killing it in this movie, right? Bone saws indeed. But right? it's also like um, it could have just been macho man. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I just uh, I love them so much. You, wait, so in your in in two thousand two Spider Man, you just like what if we just took a little. We didn't care about what's going on with Peter. Let's just do let go around with Macho Man with Buzz. Just let him be Macho Man. Just let him be Macho Man. Let him do his cream bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, you're saying don't be Bone Saw. Yeah, don't be Bone Saw. He's, but he's basically. But he's, he's, there was, he's doing There was not stuff, one single, right? oh, yeah. If that's the key ingredient to get Macho Man, is, oh, yeah, I mean, we need that. We didn't get it. And it's fine. It's not ruining the movie or anything. I just, you know, when I know it's Macho well, Man, I give me Macho Man. I heard an ooh. I mean, yeah, it, it's probably it growling. <laughs> Maybe you gave it when we were watching it. Yeah. That's fair. That's that's, uh, that's right. fair. Can I say that when I watched this part, I was like, "This is fucking really mm. well made." Like the wrestling stuff is really good. You know, like there's that weird POVs. Really directed. Yeah. Yeah. But they here's work. The thing. That sequence is kind of like what also made me think about this. Because like when Peter walks up to the ring, we get really claustrophobic close-ups of Peter, like almost just his eyes. And then it cuts to the wi- the widest they can get in the space of like the audience and everything, the lights. Like in terms of the editorial strategy, it's clear that he walks into this cage match as Peter and he exits, uh, exits as Spider-Man, right? So yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the action's really motivated and punchy, you know, in terms of the cage match. The set and the extra is fantastic. It feels appropriately sized event for what, like, makes the story work. Well, it's large enough to make it feel like there's excitement from the crowd. And it's got these, like, bookended short series of shots that say at the beginning, Peter enters the ring. The world is oppressively large. Wide shots cut to jarring, like, jarring close-ups of Peter's eyes. Wide to close. And then Peter wins. Or Spider-Man wins. He realizes he wins, and we get the close-up shot of his face, realizing that the crowd loves him, cut to the wide of the crowd. So that's close to wide. So wide to close as he enters, close to wide as he exits. It's it's, it's like this little wrap and unwrap. It's like an editorial ribbon of shots saying, he can fight. His world just got a lot lar- larger, you know? Like, uh, And cool. I think that that is intentional because of the way in which it was edited and the way it kind of... It's the same thing with the dolly in, dolly back. What does it mean? So, yeah. Then we get the uh, sequence where he gets money from his winnings and the uh, the bookie gets robbed. And there's two things I just want to point out. Peter sidesteps to allow the robber to get into like a box partition of frame. Yeah. Leading to the idea of obeying the system that's fucked him so often. This this The boxes go ahead and go into the box, all things in their box. You know, like that's totally. what Peter does to allow this shit to happen. And obviously, ultimately, ulti- Uncle Ben dies. 
And then we get a closest shot we ever get camera wise to Peter. And his smile like grows on his face. <laughs> like he's like, yeah, I fucking, I did justice, right? Yeah. And the camera is like wide and uncomfortably close. It's actually kind of like a jarring shot, if you remember. Yeah, it it, like, uh, it had shades of emo Spider-Man from Spider-Man 3. It was like, mm, I don't right. know. Right. <laughs> He's like, yeah, because yeah. in his head, this moment means justice. But in the in the eyes of this system, this visual system, he's the farthest he's ever been from being free. So, of course, it would be marked by all the things I'm talking about inside a box. Camera's way too close to him. Uh, you know, like we're the, the shot is almost oppressively cropping his face. And then, of course, we cut to dead Ben. So it's like kind of the all is lost moment for Peter that inspires the openness of the Spider-Mans. And so uh, this marks the beginning of the Spider-Man, Peter Parker kind of amalgam. He's now synthesized once he goes through his grief period. Now the movie kind of displays qualities of both because at different times when he's flirting or whatnot with like Mary Jane, sometimes he's Peter, sometimes he's Spider-Man, but ultimately he's more, more Spider-Man than Peter at this point. Uh, but it doesn't express itself necessarily as one scene as clearly as it does with like the, the cage match. And so we'll see a lot of hallmarks of both approaches, depending on the moment for uh, the rest of the film. There's no clear winner, I guess, is what I'm saying, because it's not like two sides vying for control of like Peter Parker's identity. I mean, it is kind of in the in the comic book, but it's less so than something like Venom. You yes, know, like, absolutely. It's not a it's more of a transformation that happens in act one. It's like it's boxes and then it's freedom then boxes then freedom and so on and on and on it's because those are two parts of peter not because he is now only spider-man it's not like spider-man one well there's also just there's a lot of threads to start following after the act break like the story kind of blasts open Mm -hmm. into several threads like the descent of norman osborne and and uh his son dating mj and mj's wanting to find an identity for herself and uh, Spider-Man's relationship with Aunt May. You have to do enough work that that matters. And, you know, so it stops being as focused, uh, which makes it harder to do this camera yeah. work, I think. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's You can't. That's why I don't think it's as clear as of a system to everyone, because he did it. He did it because he knew instinctively, I think it was right. But Absolutely. he didn't need to make room for it. He didn't need to be like, well, that now then we need to close that system. We need to take that visual strategy that I created as Sam Raimi and like take it home. He doesn't ever really do that. So this is more of just like me reading into his instincts. That's interesting. Um, But yeah, then we get the first sequence after Ben dies. When Spider-Man chases down the murder, we see him attach a wall and then something interesting happens. We get the first time that we get like Spider-Man camera, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Because then he starts, you know, or he's oriented strangely in space because cameras, you're not, you're looking at the wall and you're not quite sure, you know, he's kind of on a rooftop, but what is up, what is down, you know, because that's like, that's how you shoot Spider-Man. And the camera dollies back always with Spider-Man camera. It's always a compound shot that leads to another compound shot. And by compound shot, I mean like uh, it dollies back, it dollies back and it like 
will like pan over and will reveal a new kind of composition of frame. And then it'll do another thing and reveal a new composition of frame. So it's multiple axes firing at all cylinders and a compound shot is more of just like, I go from one place to another, which takes me to another. Um, So this is totally different from what we saw before. Suddenly the cameras fly this flying entity that kind of motivates his moves before he acts and the world is not only opening up to him it's drawing our eyes to where he can go which is literally anywhere because he's spider-man so raimi leads us by dolly by pan by tilt to the next place in spider cam mode and this is totally different than everything before it because everything before it has always been something happens and then peter moves to it like he is always behind in the movement there's a stagnant lack of movement before Ben dies, after Ben dies, and he starts chasing this uh, this guy, like the camera just operates on a different level. It says, I'm going to move and you're going to follow. Hmm. And I thought that that was interesting. And then we get mostly for the next like 30, 40 minutes, Green Goblins develop stuff that you mentioned, stuff like that. Peter becomes a photographer for the Daily Bugle. We don't really follow a system here because it's not about P- these sequences aren't about Peter and Spider-Man at hmm. odds. It's about this new threat, the Green Goblin. So the emphasis is less about, less important in these bits because the drama doesn't surround his inner struggle until Act Three, and then we get a sequence in it, like right before Act Three, which is the upside down kiss scene, and uh, that's around like seventy percent into the movie. It's also probably the most important moment in a Marvel movie. Just, you know, yeah. I really, I, I'm not kidding. I think yeah. it is. Uh, it's very yeah, iconic. It matters. It's been parodied absolutely. enough times. It absolutely matters. And you it's know? an image that only a Marvel movie could make. You know what I mean? Like it's such a it, it, yeah. I think that's the genius of it is that like it's it's your it's your standard romance in the rain thing, a thing we love in movies, but it's a version of it that only a Marvel superhero could do. But it's cool because the orientation is yeah. weird and that's what we all notice and that is very Spider-Man. It's very Spider <laughs> Spider-Man. It's the Spider that is very uh, Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, because he's literally breaking the convention of the frame, right, right? Right. Like it's a simple thing, obvious to anyone, but the fact that he opens up the edges of frame with his orientation is something that filmmakers have done in the past. Like, how do you imply a world larger than the frame itself? You kind of crop it in a way that makes the audience focus on where else it could go. Think of the Star Wars Star Destroyer shot yeah. in a new hope the first image and you go oh shit this ship is big man how like how do you get there well you do it by an abstraction of space by implying that it's endless and it's it's colossal in its amount of like how long it can keep going and that is how you imply something by implying larger than the frame in spider-man this is basically like, like the moment where he's going like, I can show you the world, you know, like it's him saying like, I can do baby. I can do upside down. If you need the fact that he's cropped in a strange way implies to us audience that you're like, okay, this is where really Spider-Man can't like Spider-Man really can break convention in a strange way. I think that a lot of times also you movies now would be more interested in seeing like the entire shot of it, like the entire action that's happening so you'd see like more of a full we get a wider yeah. shot and i think i yeah. think Raimi is right here that I, the, the intimacy suit. of it is what yeah. matters 
so like the fact that it's basically in a medium close to shot is actually more important than seeing how it works, you know? And, uh, I think as yeah, you, s- if you showed it a wide, it would be, a lot it'd be dumb uh, or not dumb. It would be, it would rob the, the intimacy of it. Cause it's, it's an intimate moment. Like Danny Elfman is doing a nice job of like giving us, you know, movie kiss magic. Like he, like it's, it's working here. Yeah. And I think, Little smooches with the violin. Yeah, but I think that you're right that the popping into frame aspect of it, which is how he enters that frame, he slides into it pretty quickly, is part of mm-hmm. what get, it's part of what made it extraordinary because the frame can't contain Spider-Man anymore. Uh, and it, you know, yep. and I think that that does it, Matt, it did trigger in us when we're watching it. Like I remember thinking of that this time before I read your argument. It's it's the same yeah. effect. It's almost always yeah. the, the potential. Yes. It shows that he has a unique perspective by using the potential of like what, by what's outside the frame. I know it's well, as stupid having, as like, it's about it, the notes that you don't play, but it is that though. By having Spider-Man able to defy the limitations of a frame, right? And as you said, the the filmmaker has so clearly defined Peter Parker's limitations by the frame that the fact that the frame can't contain Spider-Man uh, becomes really exciting, you know, and it's and it's used for both yeah. uh, impact, like sort of like, ooh, like the impressive part of it, impact, and it's used for comedy effect uh, here, but also in other movies mm-hmm. like uh, Hot Fuzz and uh, a lot of Edgar Wright's films. He'll use like what's outside of the frame to it re- both reinforce like peeking yeah, like for yeah. it's funny where the hand is coming from scott pilgrim yeah. when he jumps out the uh he jumps out the window hot fuzz Cake. Where, you know the andy's come back in yeah. frame yeah, yeah and like it's used for comic effect but stuff. it also does exactly the same thing which is to say it reinforces how contained the protagonist normally is by a frame you know, uh, right. Something that we take for right. Granted, we we just is yeah, kind of the fun right. of it. That's right. The filmmaker understands this is an arbitrary limitation. Anyway, yeah, uh, love it. Love what you're up to here. Uh, and so let's look at the Thanksgiving as like to kind of take this thought home, which is that Peter and if you remember the scenes, probably most people do because this is like a crazy yeah, this weird movie. studio apartment Peter arrives. Yeah. <laughs> home yeah. late and has to go up on the ceiling because he's worried about the blood dripping on Willem Dafoe, who has also, I assume, the spider ketchup sense. blood, that bright uh, red gooey ketchup yeah. blood. <laughs> oh, yeah. The goo- gooey spider yeah. blood. Yeah, he does. <laughs> you know, his, his, his blood is different. <laughs> it really and, is. <laughs> and then and then he escapes Norman Osborn's like little investigation, uh, like when he's like, ah, I think I sense someone's here. Yeah. And then he goes, he goes and looks out at the balcony and we get a shot where he's Spider-Man's upside down on the scaffolding outside. And so these two shots where Spider-Man is basically, uh, you know, he's just wherever he wants to be because he's a fucking spider camera doesn't know up or down. It mixes the right side up in the shot. This is the key part mixes right side up. It always takes us from, you know, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, he's right side Spider-Man. up. Yeah, and then pull out. And Spider-Man's vantage is upside. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's like an Escher painting. Like, if I, I thought of um, what it actually made me think of is uh, Labyrinth yep. in the dream yep. sequences. Like, 
with you know David Bowie is Spider-Man and Jennifer <laughs> Connelly is Willem Dafoe. Okay. Uh, this is kind of what I mean when I say Spider-Man's world is open, right? It's not just the dolly back shots or the swinging sequences that imply space. It's also Spider-Man's geography and how it's different than everyone else's. I think everyone kind of intuitively notices this because they go, ah, he's right side up or ah, the frame makes it seem like he's upside down. Uh, he can be anywhere on anything. Um, and if you've seen like, and like a lot of movies have done this. If you've seen Ender's game, of I course. just watched that recently. It's pretty good. Yeah, years ago. They have a similar revelation about that. that they actually script out, uh, that space has like no upside up or down. And we kind of see hints of that in Raimi's approach to Spider-Man. There is no up, there is no down, but only um, for him. So basically only, only for Spider-Man. Only for Which him. Which is great. That's the. It's always got to be a reveal. It's always got to be, here's what the world looks like. Now, here's what Spider-Man's world looks like. Because once again, the formula is dollying back. Wider. We get wider. Um, ultimately, my thought is that Raimi shoots the two sides of Spider-Man with this kind of intention of separating the worlds, right? And I think good directors build systems that dictate the cinematic approach of their characters. And it says, look at this person in this certain way. It governs our judgment of like those people in particular by subtly framing our perspective of how we see them. It's kind of like the invisible hand of directing, but it should never be overlooked. If you like that kind of thing, just look no further than the first like 30 or 40 minutes of any film. Directors will tell you exactly how they see their characters by how they introduce them. Yep. Either we see something like a sweeping wide, they're apart from the environment, or we see an intimate close-up. This is all about their choices, or we see a short frame, their eyes are closed to the world. Like there's so many ways you can do it and so many different meanings you can extrapolate from it. But the shot does matter, and the result may be subjective. But the governance of what occupies the canvas ought to show you how these people see how these people's worlds ought to be seen, not just like kind of journey along with them. And this is what Sam Raimi does in the first hour of Spider Man. It's one of your great that's it themes that's in this podcast to sort of like break down uh, motif introductions and first acts. Like I don't know why it never occurs to me to yeah. do that because you're really good at it, uh, and I, you're right. I mean, like uh, those are interesting motifs that he does get away from them, but it's clear that he was trying them. You know, uh, it's clear he was trying yeah. with them, and he instinctively followed some rules, even if he didn't set up those rules in a way that are like when you watch back the film, you go, oh, and that's that's the shot where the rule breaks. Or he does even have those though. Like he has that moment where it's like, all right, Spider-Man wakes up. Dolly, Dolly's now go back. <laughs> you know, it's like that is whether or not he went out to seek that. That is what's in. That's what I'm seeing on screen. So that's what I'm picking up. And I think what I know? like about Raimi is how instinctive of a filmmaker he seems to be. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know what his, I, think I don't right. know what his writing or direct or his shot listing process is at all. And so I, you know, maybe he's extremely calculated, uh, and deliberative and, and that could be true. Uh, but when I watch his films, I get this sort of like this sort of gleeful instinctive, like gunslinger kind of vibe from how he shoots stuff. Uh, so it's fun how it mm -hmm. still congeals, right? Cause that's what the artist is. The artist is the, part of you that in the back of your brain is putting things together like putting meaning together that maybe even the conscious you doesn't know you're doing 
you know, and maybe he planned all this. He right. could have, and and I would still think it was great. But I, there's a part of me thinks maybe he didn't, and I love that if that's true, right? Uh, yeah, it's kind of definitely. Oh, well, I mean, it's definitely what he's perceived as as like this instinctual kind of like we said. I think I said wild man earlier. You right. Know, like he definitely has this vibe of like let's just get that shot and that shot and that shot. Um, but and he, I, it's the fact that he he works with the Coner brothers like early in his career and like they were great friends and probably thought a lot of similar thoughts about filmmaking. I can't speak to the nature of their you know like collaborations and such, but especially because though these guys in particular are there's not a lot of info on them. They don't like to let yeah the, they don't want to let you in. They don't like to yeah. let people like press in on the joke, you know, like, so I don't know. He may be very deliberately he could be making those vibe of instinct and he just like passing it off as, you know, like, this is just what I want to, this is the type of films I want to make. I think, um, Tim Burton is, uh, he's a lot more meticulous, I would say because yeah. of the art design sense sure. in his worlds. But when you look at like Tim Burton's camera, he also feels very instinctual. Certainly um, with camera, less with design, obviously, but but with camera, I I agree. Exactly. But also, like I think there's something to be said for artists sort of uh, appreciating the person they're not. Like for instance, like Kubrick and and Spielberg were close friends, which anybody who's like a big film buff knows that. Like they used to like call each other and just talk on the phone. <laughs> a thing that just sounds amazing mm-hmm. to me. Like what were those phone calls like? But anyway. Part of the reason they were so enamored of each other as friends is that they were like on opposite sides of a continuum in a sense. Like, you know, Kubrick never had a big blockbuster hit and made a lot of movies that were challenging and sometimes like either critically well received, but not beloved by audiences or vice versa. Right. And uh, Spielberg was the guy who had a Midas touch, you know, and so they kind of admired each other for those opposite reasons. The difference. Yeah. And and like, I honestly, when I watch a Coen brothers movie, I do feel like they're antithetical to Sam Raimi's movies in a lot of ways, you know, and they're neither of them are better or worse. Like per se, they're just different approaches. Uh, but maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe they are rubbing off on each other in a sense. Cause then you watch something like simple plan and you're like, Oh, so Raimi can do this like really contained slow burn thing too he just yeah, it's want kind of to. a running joke that he's like i wanted to make fargo so here's my fargo <laughs> it's very movie. good too and it's, it's a like good movie that that like as a joke i don't think it's true but like as a joke you think immediately like is, is that coming from some form of insecurity from Raimi or something like that like i can make those types of movies <laughs> you know i'm better than any of or you or a demand for uh, them but maybe it's not that yeah or, you know, he's just like, I think that that's just how the story needed to be told, is it didn't need me getting in the way with the way I usually tell my movies. But it's like, then why not leave that to other directors? So it's this kind of paradoxical format where it's like he's he is both that type of thing and he's also like reactionary to that kind of thing. That's what makes Sam Raimi, I think, so interesting, is that at times he is truly unhinged. Like the idea, the, the, the ideas he has are sometimes outlandish. I love Spider-Man 2's sequence where Doc Ock like goes to town on like the, all of the lab assistants and doctors that are like 
trying to find out what's going on with his arms. And it's like, wow. It's just like you are you're in your own category of filmmaker. Like you do your own thing and it's, we all can see it. Um, and that's usually about like the thing I said, we weren't really going to talk about on this particular, but now yes. that the theory is over, um, same Raimi yeah, no. very much. So ha- has the stylistic approach of like, a, he's a singular voice. He like, you just think of like, all I, all I think about all the time with Sam Raimi is it to me, the perfect image is just, that eyeball horizontally is uh, traversing through space and then just going, going right in the mouth, <laughs> just going of right course. there. And it's just, that is an unhinged thought and it's a perfect way to shoot that. There's so many different ways to shoot it, but that's Sam Raimi's way of shooting it. He, and that is, I think probably his main, that, this is trademark. It's his main thing. That's why I think he's instinctual, but it's cool to see these kind of like invisible choices. The invisible ones are fascinating because, in a way, they're either more intentional uh, or completely unintentional. They're one or the other. I know I've kind of argued both in this episode. Uh, right. That, I agree. Uh, yeah. Like, it's the, it feels paradoxical because you can see both being true. I could see both of them being time, true. at the same time, one of them betrays the other theory because they're at their... I mean, it's what makes good art good art. It's like, it seems like they're ca- contradictory. But the synthesis is perfect, you know? I don't know. That's I mean, how I I totally it. agree. Uh, yeah, I'm just so fascinated by how, like, how we landed on him for Spider-Man at all. Like, I mean, I, you know, we could get it. I, I, I don't, yeah. don't want to get... Here's 140 million. Well, and like Sam Raimi you is such it. a, an off-brand filmmaker in some ways, right? Like, like you look at all of his films before Spider-Man and they're all, uh, sort of quirky offbeat movies. Even the bigger ones are quirky offbeat right. movies. And not that he's a bad director. He's a great director. I like his work a lot. Uh, I look up to his work a lot mm-hmm. and I like how, stylish like stylish and inventive he can be and his gunslinger vibe i like that too but it's funny that that all congealed into spider-man which is like ultimately one of the most important films in the last 20 30 years like not because and not because of how good it is although it is good but because of what it means uh, for the industry you know it's huge right right and when you look at like your evil dead twos right dark man's uh quick in the dead quick in yeah. the dead and then you look at his and that so that he did that and that's like him up until like 1995 right and then just looking over his filmography it's weird after that then it was it goes a simple plan yeah. for love, for of, the love game, of the which game which is the baseball one that's a weird yeah, one for him the baseball yeah. and the, and the gift. gift which is i've never yeah. seen that but i know what it is that, that's a weird movie too right yeah, it's about psychic experiences, uh, and it's it's a horror film, but it's it's more reserved than you know, like an Evil Dead or an Army of Darkness, of course. Then it was Spider Man, and I just think that that's yeah. interesting, just because it's like three in a row prove that he's like I can listen to a studio. Yeah, maybe that's what it is because I can do something yeah. that is antithetical to like, or not antithetical. I keep using that word like they're at odds, but much like Spider-Man and Peter Parker and amalgam, he's showing that he can be reserved in the way that I think that 
you know, a lot like a Marvel or like a big blockbuster would expect. He, to he also but didn't write. You wouldn't be also considered spy- for Spider-Man if he didn't do the quick and the dead, the army of darkness, you know, like the, he also, there is that element of him being unhinged in, in this still. Oh, he's still him. You know, like you're never going to get away from it uh, yeah. unless he decides to get away from it. Uh, but a movie like this, it's like you shouldn't. Right. Uh, he also, I think this matters in like, you know, and I, I haven't studied up on this, but he didn't write any of those movies. So like, uh, no. maybe that in that sense, he became more of a malleable part of the filmmaking process in the studio's eyes because he didn't need to be an auteur. That's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He would. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? That's true. After the, the last thing that he, yeah. Like the last thing that he wrote and directed was before this was 92 which is army of darkness and the next time that he wrote and directed is again was spider-man 3 so it was like there is what is that there is like 15 years it's a long time where he was just director yeah i mean that's a really you long know? time uh, i love i love him as a as a mainstay of this industry because uh He's he is the ultimate indie filmmaker and also the, the ultimate studio filmmaker. He's sort of done both. It's that's, great, you yeah. know. It, that's why it feels antithetical, but it's in the end, it's just it's just Raimi, baby, you know. And I think there's a lot of filmmakers who kind of have that weird synthesis that makes like the magic, you know. Like Jordan Peele is exactly good for the reasons that we got invested in him in early totally when we're like, you're a sketch comedian who does impressions of Obama. Right. Right. And then you're also like this very, very good, like essay film essayist. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so both of those things don't work only because we've never seen it before. And then he steps into that role and he's like, ta-da and the same thing is true with you know in terms of there's always going to be an iteration within that era of our tour auteurs uh i got corrected on my uh pronunciation of auteur you send them to me you send that person to me i will i will verbally punch (laughs) their faces off uh i think i think that you know you get your spielbergs and you get your uh like lucases and such who are always built to become out to be outside of a system and that became so big that they became a system on their own. Of course, you're going to have a little later than that. Someone who would be able to play on both sides, play Iron Man football, so to speak. Right. You know, like the, you'd get a Raimi out of, you know, that's just how the universe works. You just, you're going to spit, you spit out, out a Raimi, Raimi because it's going to be like, well, what did you need to be in order to be like to, to make the nineties and early two thousands work for your career. Well, I need to be able to be, I needed to make a mark early. So I had to be like run and gun and like entirely all style and very little substance in terms of what like studio films are looking for. Uh, but I'm just going to do my own thing. And then they're like, all right, well now that you're famous, these are the films that you can make. And this is what we're starved for. And he's like, well, I will go to work and I will whistle while I do it, sir. Uh, I think that there's the, both of those. There's two wolves inside us. Adam. <laughs> Only two. You know what I'm saying? Yes. We're a pack of two in there's our hearts. There's two wolves inside yeah. us. Uh, 
well, I think you know. Of course, I do. He's a mix. Of uh, well stated, sir. I enjoyed this theory very much. Uh, it's fun to speculate. Uh, it's fun. It's fun to yeah, see what directors do, but also to speculate uh, the level to which they plan or just instinctively accomplish this stuff. Uh, either way, I, I mean, you can't deny the man is an artist. He's still doing it, and he's doing it at a high level. He's doing it at a high level. And I thought this was like kind of a cool thing for him. I, I do Because too. he usually doesn't yeah. do it. So I was like, all right. I got to go back and rewatch a bunch of stuff and like not focus on the the flashy Raimi bits and look at the other stuff. It's fun to see past like, that. Was he always this way? Yeah. It's fun yeah. to see past that. I'm eager to see. Yeah. Maybe I gotta, I'm got. i going to watch 1985's Crime I'd kind of like to see that too. <laughs> I don't think I have seen it. So I'm intrigued by that. Uh, well, friend. Well, thanks hey, for listening. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. And uh, hey, guys, if you enjoyed this podcast uh, and somehow you haven't thrown a couple of bucks to patreon.com forward slash small beans, uh, but you want to, if all those ing- ingredients are true, uh, congratulations. That's mm-hmm. a recipe for join on up and you can hear more exclusive podcasts. Uh, including, uh, you know, special frame rate, special episode of frame rate. Uh, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. A bunch of other really cool podcasts. Uh, even our new multiverse podcast with me and the Aber. Yeah, we got some exclusives yeah. going on. We got uh, Star Trek Next Futurama. We got Spielboys, and we got uh, we got Escape from the Multicurse, which is our new show featuring both of these guys, where we talk about our current dilemma in movie making and in pop culture of the concept of the multiverse or parallel worlds, why we're so infatuated with that in the last 20 years, it seems. Um, And kind of like, just like what's going on. What's up with that? Um, Yeah. So yeah. What's up with that? What's up with that? So if you want to hear those podcasts, you can only hear those podcasts uh, if you do Patreon. So please do that. I got nothing. I don't either. Guess that means that's it. All right. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!